This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Folks, welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Bill Bartholomew here with you. Always a pleasure to spend some time together right here on the pod. And today, we welcome in for the very first time here on Bartholomew Town, the former director of the Department of Administration during COVID-19, the former chief of staff to Governor Raimondo, and someone who is, let's face it, one of the leading, likely, Providence mayoral candidates in 2022, Brett Smiley. And this is a good discussion on not only Brett's vision for Providence and for Rhode Island as a whole, but also kind of his backstory when it comes to um, certainly his time as the director of the Department of Administration here in Rhode Island during COVID-19. He was somebody who was on the stage for I mean, we kind of guesstimated about 75 of the COVID-19 pressers, so a face and a voice familiar to many Rhode Islanders and certainly a prominent player when it comes to the inside baseball of Rhode Island politics. And now, as we start to really look towards 2022 and what is going to be an epic year in Rhode Island politics in terms of the governor's race, um, all the state offices, right, the Providence mayoral race, not to mention the General Assembly, and city and town councils as well. It's going to be a huge year in 2022. We're gearing up for it here in Bartholomew Town, really starting to get the attention uh, towards covering that 2022 election cycle. And it's, look, I mean, it's kind of already trickling in. We've got Dr. Luis Daniel Munoz. He's the first person to have formally announced his candidacy for governor. And as campaign finance reports came out, we saw Seth Magaziner, he raised like, $300,000 $300,000 in uh, the first quarter here in 2021. So more or less, you know, even in an informal sense, 2022 is well underway and um, certainly on the behind the scenes side of things and also in the public facing side of things in terms of people getting out and about in the community and starting to pitch themselves and their platforms and their vision. So in a way, I guess you could kind of say this episode is our first opportunity to delve into next year's massive year in Rhode Island politics, and we do so with Mr. Brett Smiley right here on Rhode Island's podcast of record, Bartholomew Town, which you may support by visiting our Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town, or just go ahead and click the support button wherever you're listening. Okay, let's get to it. Brett Smiley in his first appearance here on B-Town. I'm sure it won't be his last as 2022 heats up. Let's get the conversation rolling here in May of 2021. We're here with Brett Smiley. This is your first time on the show, and welcome aboard. Thanks, Bill. Happy to be here. So you became, I think, for inside baseball people, you were already somebody who was well-known inside Rhode Island politics and so forth. But during the course of the pandemic, you were, I mean, I didn't keep track or anything like that, but it seems like you were at like 75 or 100 of the COVID press briefings. And I think at one point, early on, some people are like, oh, is that guy the lieutenant governor? I mean, who is he? Like, what is he? So for the state out there that the, the people who vaguely know who you are, know you from the COVID briefings, I guess kind of who are you set, set yourself up for the, the outer sphere of people who follow renowned politics? Sure. Thanks. Yeah, I was at probably at most 75 is a good guess uh, of those COVID briefings. The, um, the governor, Dr. Alexander Scott, and I uh, were most often the the trio to go up there. And um, but prior to COVID, I've had you know almost a decade now in government or pol- in, uh, public policy positions in state and local government. Uh, I was Mayor Lorza and City of Providence's first chief operating officer when he got uh, elected. I started with him in January 
of 2015, served in city government for about a year and a half before Governor Raimondo asked me to be her chief of staff. Uh, I was her longest serving chief of staff. And then uh, in January of 2020, uh, was nominated and then confirmed as the state's director of administration. And, uh, you know, and I'm really particularly passionate about uh, getting things done in government, making government run better, really the the nuts and bolts of of making the bureaucracy work for Rhode Islanders and in earlier and for prop people in Providence. Um, you know, the irony over the last year, of course, was that I went over to DOA in January of 2020 with grand plans about uh, what government efficiencies and, and what enhancements we were going to make to state government. And then, you know, four weeks later, we started to uh, shut the state down. And, and then by March, I started to see you on a regular basis at COVID briefings. And so all of those things I had intended to do at DOA didn't happen, of course, but uh, but we shifted to an entirely different set of work, which was keeping 14,000 state employees safe, uh, transitioning a workforce to remote work, um, you know, helping uh, construct field hospitals and build testing facilities and manage over a billion dollars in federal stimulus dollars while I was there. And then there's another billion coming in now. Now. And so uh, it ended up being uh, a really, really important time to be in government, but it just not exactly as originally planned. Yeah. And I want to get back to that period in a second. But, you know, in Rhode Island, I feel like growing up here, you know, you hear it at some cookout, people complaining or whatever, that the state has it, it bloated isn't the right word necessarily, but there's a large government for such a small state. You know, the constant comparison is, oh, look at our tax taxation policies and, and, and compare it with New Hampshire or compare the size of our general assembly with New Hampshire or state employees, whatever it is. And it's a challenge to run programs and build a foundation for not only social services, but for everybody um, and do so with a fiscally conservative or small bureaucracy um, mind. Is that kind of where you were trying to to thread the needle a little bit or, or are you um, just trying, are you less concerned about shrinking government and just efficiencies in terms of the people who are there and what they're doing on a daily basis? Yeah, I'm, you know, I was always focused on and, and looking forward into what I hope to be doing next. I'm focused on um, uh, instilling a customer service mindset in public employees and in government. Um, you know, the taxpayer and the resident uh, is the customer. Uh, I don't actually buy the argument that we're uh, bloated in government based upon what it is that we have to do. And, and if there's a, you know, there are some, some silver linings to have come out of this very difficult year. Uh, one of which is I think people appreciate having competent and uh, you know, honest government there to serve them during a crisis. And we saw kind of the opposite out of the federal government. And yet in state government through COVID, we had employees going to work every day, trying to serve the public, putting themselves at risk, taking care of the most vulnerable and, uh, and for no extra pay. I mean, they were just doing their job, diligent, hardworking government employees trying to provide services to people who need them. And this whole business about running government like a business is, uh, I just totally reject, you know, government does the things that business doesn't want to do or can't make a profit at. And, 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 and we are the safety net and we provide the services that have to be provided regardless of whether there's a profit in it or not. And so, um, you know, the, the place where we can always do better 
is in providing better service and, and in treating customers better and in being more accessible and adapting how we um, provide services. And so, you know, I look at some of the innovations from the last year, we've started doing so many public meetings uh, and hearings online, which has really been a, a boom to public participation. You know, prior to, it's just mostly kind of the inertia of being stuck in the old ways of doing it. There was some technology investments required. You know, maybe the hours, you know, our employees, government employees want to work the same hours as as uh, private sector employees. But the reality is, is in order for some people who have a nine to five in the private sector, they can't participate in a public meeting or come to government without having to take a day off of work. And so looking at ways to innovate, ways to serve the public is really a priority to me. And I think, you know, looking into the future, it's a huge opportunity and something that we're not very good at at the local level. And I think we can do better. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think that there's a huge opportunity for more involvement with the average person like that that doesn't necessarily follow politics, but there's an issue that they care about deeply, or maybe they do follow politics, but as you said, they don't have the time or resources to get to the state house to testify or observe a a board meeting, whatever it may be. When it comes to COVID, what was your initial reaction back in March of 2020? Did you think it was going to be like a six week type ordeal, or did you get the sense that things were gearing up for this radical shift? Uh, I had no, uh, I don't know if I could have said it was six weeks or whatever, but I certainly didn't think a year and a half later, we'd still be dealing with it. (laughs) And and to some extent, I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's many lessons in public leadership here. And I think, I think people can only kind of absorb so much information at once, myself included. Right. And uh, if that first press conference with the governor and Dr. Alexander Scott, we said, okay, you know, hunker down, by the summer of 2021, we think we'll be back on track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would have lost their mind. I think we would have lost our mind. So, uh, no, I mean, we kind of, we tried to uh, make decisions and recommendations based upon some timeline that we could reasonably predict, but but I, at least, I don't know, maybe there were wiser people than me uh, on this stuff. I'm sure there are, uh, but I didn't think it was going to be a year and a half endeavor and so consuming and worldwide and, uh, and really a once in a century event, hopefully once in a century event, hopefully these don't become more frequent. Yeah. Let's hope that we've learned in terms of preventative measures and, and understanding the, the origins and how to tackle it out of the gate versus months later. So yeah. to speak. I mean, I, I recently read that Vice President Harris was already starting a White House task force to prepare for the next pandemic, yeah. which I don't think is fatalistic. I think is responsible. Thank goodness. I mean, I remember President Trump disbanded the the pandemic response team at the White House that President Bush, I think, had set up after Ebola or H1N1. Um, so that's what responsible government leaders and policymakers should be doing. And I'm encouraged by that. One last question on COVID, a frequent complaint that we've heard is while businesses in the state were severely impact, and let me be clear, there were some measures of furlough and time off that were implemented in state government. It was, it was part of the deal, I think it was last summer, if I remember right. Um, but there are people who said, even just last week, someone asked at the briefing, you know, why haven't we seen a reduction in salaries or furloughs in terms of, of leaders? What, what's your response to that since ostensibly you kind of oversaw that portion yeah. of the response? 
We tried to balance, like everything else in government, it's all a balance. We tried to balance the fiscal demands on the state with the, the need to continue to provide services. And so, as you point out last summer, and I was a big part of this, uh, we found a, what I thought was an innovative cost-saving way to partially, essentially furlough is the work share program, um, where a large number of employees worked three days a week through the summer and were able to take advantage of a supplemental federal aid program so that their wages, their take home, the amount of money they got every week was, was the same, and yet it saved the state uh, millions. Uh, I was happy to do that, and it didn't hurt Rhode Island families while doing it. Uh, throughout the rest of the year, you have to keep in mind, first of all, state employees haven't received a raise in over a year. Their contracts expired, and uh, whereas normally we would be negotiating raises, their salaries were held flat. And as I was talking about earlier, we stayed open the whole time. Uh, you know, Unlike some other employees that, uh, regrettably, their businesses closed or shut down temporarily or cut back hours, um, State employees were still serving people in the state hospitals. They were still taking care of patients at the veterans home. They were still processing licenses at the DMV. They were still, um, you know, providing critical services that never stopped being provided. And so um, uh, these were essential workers and they've been working without a raise now for a year and a half and the state's been able to continue to balance its budget. And so, um, I think we found that balance. I was proud of how we treated our employees throughout and, uh, and, and, you know, they certainly made sacrifices in terms of, uh, their time and, uh, and, and having to come to work every day and, and making responsible choices to do so safely. Um, and so, uh, I think it was the right balance. All right, folks, this is getting real. The time for talk is over. From iron workers to engineers, business owners to biology teachers, Rhode Islanders believe in the power of offshore wind. Together, we're cleaning the air and creating jobs right here at home. Our goal of 100% renewables by 2030 is in sight, and the future is bright with Rhode Island a real leader in America's emerging offshore wind industry. So what makes you a Revolution Wind believer? Join us at revolution-wind.com slash it's real. That's revolution-wind.com slash it's real. Let's go. Hey, gang, if you'd like to reach thousands of Rhode Islanders every month, and not just any Rhode Islanders, Rhode Islanders who are plugged into politics, news, media, arts and culture, healthcare, business, the nonprofit sector, social justice, education, well, Send me an email, bill at ripodcast.com. That's bill at ripodcast.com. And we'll figure out a way for you to get your message out to our expanding audience of listeners right here on Rhode Island's podcast of record, Bartholomew Town. Pivoting to Providence and look, you know, it's kind of no secret that your name has been bandied about as someone who would be in the, um, the, the mayoral race. And you're certainly sitting on some, for a mayoral race, some fairly significant campaign cash. It's interesting moment in Providence now. I mean, we've got obviously the Providence school situation with the takeover and where does that go? Um, transportation hub and just sort of the revival of downtown and trying to stimulate something down there that can please a multitude of sides on this issue. And even before we started recording, you had mentioned Brown University and the the student housing expansion. That trickles out to just housing in general in the city. So looking at Providence right now, 
what's your elevator pitch to somebody about what needs to get done immediately? Where are the priorities? And if you were in any leadership capacity within the city, how would you approach that? Yeah. So, you know, I love Providence and I think a lot of us do, and and it has all of the ingredients to be a world-class city. And yet it always seems just out of touch uh, to, to actualize that potential. And I think it's because we've gotten distracted and, and neglected, you know, what I'll call the basics, but it's the things that are the core quality of life issues for neighborhoods. You know, we have uh, roads that we struggle to have the money to pave and then we cut into them again and again, <laughs> and uh, we pay to pave them two or three times. There's, you know, chronic potholes, sidewalks uh, that never get repaired, sewers that are crumbling and cause neighborhood flooding. These these basic infrastructure problems, in addition to things like noise complaints from the ATVs and the motorcycles. Last summer, we had a real problem with fireworks. Um, the city, you know, has chronic kind of complaints about street sweeping that I hear from, from uh, commercial business owners on, on our kind of main streets throughout Providence, that it's just dirty and that they, like the things that people are asking for are not complicated. And, and, and if we can't get that stuff right, I don't know how we get the bigger stuff right. So I'm very interested in getting back to the basics, focusing on these core quality of life issues. We're not going to be able to do a lot of that if we don't write the ship financially, which means continue to, uh, make you know responsible budget decisions, but also grow the economy and have a real economic development plan for the city, which I think is lacking. Uh, and, and then part of that economic development plan is good public schools. That's why people move to certain neighborhoods in certain cities and towns. And so you, you flagged the state takeover. That's of primary importance to me. We need to make sure that those reforms which were promised are delivered, and then we should return them to local control uh, in the in the next couple of years. So um, those are, I think, the priorities. And, and what sets me apart is that I'm, I'm the only candidate who has managed a budget of anything close to this size. I'm the only candidate who's managed people, anything close to this scale. I'm the only candidate who's ever negotiated a labor contract, uh, which is a huge part of how to, how to get things done in government. Uh, and I think that that experience has given confidence to people that of all the politicians making promises this year, uh, that I'm going to be the one that can actually get it done, that can actually fulfill those promises. So um, that's what I'm uh, going out and talking to people about in Providence. And so far, the reception has been great. That really is the key word, manager. A lot of people, and I think it's true at the, the gubernatorial level as well, but certainly at a mayoral level, it's policy is there and it's got to be part of your identity and you've got to implement your vision and the vision of the city more importantly, but you've also got to manage getting the trash picked up on time. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, the city council plays a role in policy. Frankly, the legislature plays a role in policy. As you well know, provinces in Rhode Island is kind of a city state uh, and there's a lot of interaction between the two. Uh, and so the mayor needs to have a vision. And I certainly do in terms of policies that I'll advocate for. But but my view is that it is primarily a management job. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's actually how you make uh, changes that impact people's quality of life. What's your relationship like with the current administration in terms of uh, in, in terms of the state level with Governor McKee and, and Lieutenant Governor Matos and that operation? I mean, do you, do you feel like you're in touch with them and you, you could have a strong working relationship with them if, um, let's say, they're they're elected, reelected 
or I guess, how would you describe that? I guess if they were elected for the first time and continued on as the administration and if you were elected as mayor, do you sense there would be a good working relationship? I do. Yeah, I, I, I'm in touch with uh, Governor McKee's team. I'm very friendly with uh, Lieutenant Governor Matos. Most of the governor's cabinet was Governor Raimondo's cabinet, yeah. which were my former colleagues who I remain uh, friends with uh, and in, in close contact with. And so uh, I am confident that uh, I could work well with them. And I think that that's another uh, kind of compelling piece to my candidacy, which is Providence depends on the state. Uh, we receive a lot of state aid. There's a lot of things that we can't do without their blessing and, uh, and support. And my experience in state government and my relationships, both in the executive branch, but also in the legislative branch, uh, I hope will make me a more effective mayor and, uh, and and yet another way in which I distinguish myself from my uh, who I presume to be my opponents in the race. Last question. What, when, when you think about Rhode Island right now, there's a big push for the blue economy, and that includes everything from wind turbines to fisheries to Smart Bay and developing the waterways and even preventative Acts, for example, there's that graph that Brown put out a couple of years ago that which that shows basically half of downtown Providence underwater by I don't remember what year, but a year in each of our lifetimes yeah, um, exactly. if we don't act. And so there's that segment. There's people, even for example, the the the, the bike life kids. They they say, look, we need a, a, a motorcycle track, and their larger point is we need to be a hub for some sort of very specific entertainment. Um, we see Mayor Lorza proposing putting stages downtown as well as like a sprinkler system you can run through that basically would make a hub for everybody to just hang out and, and community communities, I guess, in and of themselves can just kind of come together to drive an economy in the city. What is the one thing that Rhode Island really needs to quadruple down on to create both an economic stimulus, but also a cultural stimulus that might lead to us moving forward and being a more prominent um, space, both Providence and Rhode Island, the city state as a whole on a global scale? Just one thing. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, if, if I could, there's a couple places sure. where I, I think we uh, have an opportunity. We, in some cases, already distinguish ourselves and can expand upon. Um, so first, uh, we do have a real opportunity with respect to the blue economy. Um, you know, I don't think people, a lot of people would, when you think coastal community in Rhode Island, I think most people think Newport or maybe Narragansett. Providence is a coastal community also. And, and so we've got an incredible opportunity to continue to show expertise and create good paying jobs in the blue economy. And that's that is wind power, but it's also things like looking at the Port of Providence and trying to make it the, the greenest port in America. The emissions from um, the shipping industry are some of the worst polluters in the world. And we can be a leader in terms of safe discharge and alternative fuel sources for shipping. Uh, and, and I wanna see us use that port in a way that's both ecologically friendly, but also a stimulator for jobs. Yeah. Secondly, we we have a, a reputation and I think we can continue to exploit and do more to support the arts in Providence to be a destination for cultural endeavors. Uh, we have uh, an incredible both kind of uh, 
organic arts culture of, of makers and musicians and performers, but then we also have some, you know, uh, nationally renowned uh, institutions like Trinity that uh, put us on the map and make us a destination both for tourist dollars and for just cultural and, and creative endeavors. And then finally, I want to see us continue to strengthen the connection to Boston. Um, there is a, you know, a, a world-renowned economic ecosystem in Boston and Cambridge. We are, are a very short distance away and with investments in public transportation, I think we should be building more highways, but with better, faster train service, we should, you know, a lot of people have talked about this, but we need to actually do it. We need to plug in more thoroughly. I think that you mentioned the housing crisis earlier, um, and we certainly have an affordability crisis in Rhode Island and in Providence, uh, but it is still a fraction of what it costs to live in Boston. And so we've got a real opportunity to, to attract talent and businesses and jobs from people fleeing suburban Boston. Uh, and I wanna see us continue to, uh, uh, to exploit that advantage because the, the quality of life in Providence is second to none. And uh, the, the, the kind of life that you can have here in terms of there's not really any traffic, the restaurants are great, the art scene's terrific, there's diversity, the people are great. Like this is a great place to live. And, uh, and I think, through the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people move here and uh, because they've started to realize that, you know, they can buy a house for what they were paying in rent and uh, and have and raise their family here. And I want to continue to provide that opportunity. Yeah, I think that that is definitely the key. Um, and I would even argue that New York as well. I mean, I'm biased. I lived there for 10 years. So and but it was the same thing for me. Like, OK, do I want to continue to live in a shoebox or get some space? Do I want to have 15 to 120 minutes of my day spent parking (laughs) or pull into a parking spot and go into the house? And both of those markets are right there. And I always think of Google Maps. And if you just click on Providence and hit hit, zoom out one time, there it is, the region. And it's a little pinch and there you are. Right. And and those those are right there for us to take advantage of. It really comes down to trains more than anything else. Yeah, I totally agree. And if we're in a world, we don't quite know what the kind of the new uh, workflow is going to be post-pandemic, but I think most people seem to think, I personally think it's going to be some blend between um, at home and in person for those who are uh, in a job that can't be working remote. And so if you need to be in the office one day a week, one day a month, one day a quarter, there's no reason you can't be based in Providence for a job that used to be based in New York or certainly Boston, but even New York at that point, one day a week, one day a month, that's doable. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.